You may open your Bibles to John chapter 3. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. We are reviewing what we understand from the Word of God about the doctrine of salvation, the gift of eternal life given by God to His children. In ourselves, we are nothing and less than nothing. It is by pure grace and mercy that we have been saved, and it is by pure grace and mercy and a little tiny bit of the diligence of man that is by the grace and mercy of God that we understand our salvation according to His Word. We are asking questions of Arminians. We are not answering questions by Arminians. We have done that at other times and in other places. And we would be happy to answer their questions. But we are asking a few questions this time. In John chapter 3, we have the account of a ruler of the Jews named Nicodemus coming to the Lord Jesus Christ by night and acknowledging that he was master and that at least for he and maybe some close friends of his, they knew that he was a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And yet there were other Jews that said Jesus did his miracles by the power of Beelzebub. What made the difference in that perception? That the Lord Jesus Christ was sent by God, was a teacher from God, that knew more than Nicodemus knew, otherwise he wouldn't have called him master. Right. And that all that he did was, was by the Lord, by his Lord's strength, by the Lord's calling, by the Lord's power and authority. We understand something about Nicodemus that most don't, that God had already made a significant difference in this man's life between those that accused Jesus of doing it with the power of Beelzebub or the devil and this man's testimony right here. These words are very familiar to Arminians, and they should be familiar to us as well. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the power of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth to cast out devils and do things by the power of God. Jesus said, if I cast out devils by the finger of God, then no doubt... The kingdom of God is come unto you. Right. Nicodemus saw that the kingdom of God had come unto them by the power that the Lord Jesus Christ wrought. Arminians will read this verse, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And they interpret it this way. You need to get saved. The whole verse means nothing to them except you need to get saved. Do you want to get saved right now? then kneel down with me and I'll get you saved. That's all the verse means to them. They don't know what the kingdom of God is. They don't know what the word see means. Because everyone can see. There is no such thing as a blind man. They can all see as long as you'll present it to them clearly enough. Usually with flannel graph, a jack chick track, a motorcycle lock-in, or enough food, clothing, and medicine, and they'll see it. And you need to get saved. 
But that's not what the verse is saying. We understand Jesus to be telling Nicodemus, if you hadn't been born again, you wouldn't know anything about the kingdom of God. Why are you holding to a position that is so different from all of your fellow Pharisees? Why are you acknowledging God is with me and it's God's power by which I do these things when the others do not? Why did you call me master and they call me a wine-bibber? We don't have time for phrase by phrase of John 3 right now. We come down to verse 7. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Along comes the Arminian and says, see, you need to get saved. That's what it means when it says, ye must be born again. Nicodemus, you need to get saved. The Calvinist comes along and says from this verse, or the fatalist comes along and from this verse says, Marvel not that I said unto thee, Nicodemus, you're already born again. But neither are said in this verse. And the reason we know that is because we've got a very old Bible. And our very old Bible has these and thous and ye's and yours. And when it's a T second person pronoun, it means a single person. And when it's a Y second person pronoun, it means more than one person. So Jesus said, marvel not that I said unto thee, Nicodemus, you Jews and any Gentiles that are going to be saved have to be born again. He's stating a law of his religion that unless men are born again, they're never going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be born again? So we come to regeneration. Arminians typically believe that sinners must be born again to go to heaven when they die. So far, we would agree with them. But they would go on and say, but all they have to do to be born again is to invite Jesus into their hearts and accept Him as their personal Savior, and you can be born again right now. Would you like to be born again today? If you'll raise your hand, if you'll walk the aisle... We'll have some prayer warriors or some soul winners meet with you after the service and you can be born again today. But the wind bloweth where it listeth. In verse 8, And thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. The Spirit of, the, the Spirit of God moves where and when God pleases. And we may see the effect of it, but we don't bring it. We don't bear it. The wind blows wherever it wants to. The word listeth means wherever it willeth. And it's God's will that is active in the regeneration of sinners, just like in His government of the wind. We see the effects by trees blowing. We see the effects of people believing the gospel. As I read to you this morning from 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 17, when someone believes the gospel, then the preaching of the gospel is in the nostrils of God a sweet aroma of life unto life. The life was already there. The gospel found a person with life, and that person, by believing it, shows that they shall have everlasting life in the great day of judgment. But those that reject it, It is the savour of death unto death to them. The difference here is God blows the Spirit of God like the wind, and then men are born again. And then men can see. And then men can hear. And then men can perceive and understand and obey the gospel. So when we meet an Arminian that says, I want to help you get born again, the first question we can ask is, what must a man do? in order to be born again. Let's just get them committed. 
What does a man have to do to be born again? And once they answer that, which would be to invite Jesus into their heart, our next question would be, what part of man is it that does what a man must do in order to be born again? We want to help them think through the process just a little tiny bit deeper than their little one-sentence sinner's prayer that they think turns heaven and earth upside down and gets God to write a new name down in glory. So we ask that question. Then once they tell us, well, we're not really sure, but it must be the will of man because man has a free will that needs to invite Jesus into his heart in order to be born again. We'll help them out by saying, is it his flesh or his spirit? Because the passage here only tells us that we have two parts, flesh and spirit. So which is it? Is it the flesh that invites Jesus into its heart in order to be born again? Or is it the Spirit that invites Jesus into the heart in order to be born again? If it's the Spirit that invites Jesus in, the person is already born again because that which is flesh is flesh and that which is Spirit is Spirit. It's already born again. And if they say, well, well, then it's the flesh that invites Jesus into the heart. Then we take them back to John chapter 1 and verse 13 where it says, it is not of the will of the flesh that we are born, which were born, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Just like it says here. And this is in the gospel of John. Remember, we have entered sacred ground. Take your shoes off. We're in John 3. And we're finding out things in John 3 that they don't even believe, that they don't even understand. And yet they want to jump into the middle of this chapter and think they understand the 16th verse when they don't understand the verses leading up to it. I hope that you saw a little tiny paragraph that I gave you this past week about verses 14 and 15, where Jesus told Nicodemus that like Moses raised up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And oh, they get so excited. See? All you've got to do is look and be saved. But there's a problem with that. That isn't what Jesus was talking about in verses 14 and 15. He didn't mention anything about looking. What he mentioned about was a pole. And what he mentioned was being lifted up. That he was going to be hung between heaven and earth like the brass serpent was hung between heaven and earth. He was telling a leader of the Jews that the Messiah of Israel was not going to be a king reigning in a victorious land warfare against the Roman Empire, but he was going to die being hung on a tree. But the other thing I wanted to point out to you in that little paragraph is if you go back to Numbers chapter 21, verses 6 through 9, and read about the fiery serpents that bit the Israelites, God told Moses about the brass serpent after he had killed everyone he wanted to kill. Go read it. It says, when much people had died, God told Moses, raise up a brass serpent, and anyone that looks at the brass serpent will live, but they're already alive. Now, Arminian, you don't want to take me very far in John 3, verses 14 and 15, because it's life unto life. It's not death unto life. There was no one laying around on the ground, dead from a fiery serpent, that got brought to life because Moses brought his crucifix over and put it before his eyes. Enough about that. We're dealing with being born again. I couldn't help. 
We're in sacred territory with the Arminians as we enter John 3, and I just wanted to run a little further with them. John chapter 3. If a man must believe to be born again, Mr. Arminian, is it his natural man or his spiritual man? Now see, my favorite question is, is it flesh or is it spirit? Because that is right here in the sixth verse. If they say spirit, then he's already born again. Because the Bible says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. But if a man is in the flesh, John 1.13 has ruled out the flesh. Romans 8, 7 and 8 has said, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So then one of my questions has been in the past, Mr. Arminian, does a person get born again by doing something displeasing to God? Because unless you agree that it's doing something displeasing to God, the flesh can't do it. Because the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8, 7 and 8. And so we reason with the Arminians as we review our salvation and our understanding of it. What do we understand about regeneration? We understand about it, about the way we understand the wind blowing. About the way we understand bones being formed in the womb of her that is with child. Do you know that it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, you have about the same degree of comprehension of both subjects? And that's not very much. Do you know what you get to do? Do you know what's, what's the most we can do? Is take pictures of it. Watching it happen. And who's making it happen when you look at an ultrasound? God's making it happen. Who brought life into a mother's womb? God did at that moment of conception. Why in the world would the Lord Jesus Christ use the imagery of birth, being born again, if you participate in that birth, Mr. Arminian? How much did you participate in your first birth? Did you pick the parents of that birth? Did you pick the time of that birth? Did you pick the day and the hour that you were actually brought into the world? Did you pick how many times the cord was wrapped around your head before you made it in? Did you pick what country you were born in? Did you pick what generation you were born in? Did you pick what color hair and eyes you would have? Did you pick how many toes you would have? Did you pick the intellectual capacity of your brain? You didn't participate at all. God didn't even ask you if you wanted to be born the first time. You were just born by God's sovereign choice, and He had written you in His book according to Psalm 139 before you were born. And so it is for everyone that is born of God. We're written in God's book of life before the world began. And in time, we're born by the powerful voice of the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to our souls to live. And we live. That's John chapter 5 and verse 25. If a man must exercise belief and faith and understanding in the gospel to be born again, Mr. Arminian, is it the natural man or the spiritual man? And where would you take him if that was our question? 1 Corinthians 2.14, which you read last evening. For the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. So if you're going to present the gospel to a natural man, it is a fruitless exercise. Mr. Arminian, no one can change a natural man into a spiritual man except God. Because the natural man thinks your presentation is foolishness. If by coercion, if by scary stories about people walking out of services and being killed by a car, 
if by offering enough clothing and medicine, you get someone to invite Jesus into their heart, that isn't proof at all by your methods that they're God's at all or that they're saved. And you shouldn't guarantee their salvation. You should just preach Christ crucified. Ugly, plain, and bold. And see what they do with it. Pull the medicine back. Hide it behind the curtains. Give it to them after they believe. Don't even let them know that it's there and see how many will believe. Because the natural man won't do it. It's the spiritual man that believes, according to 1 Corinthians 2. Mr. Arminian, if a man must exercise his will to believe, why does the Bible preclude man's will? Aren't you running into a contradiction? You're saying that a man must exercise his will in order to be born again, but the Bible says, so then it is not of him that willeth, but of God that showeth mercy. Do you see your problem? It's a significant problem. If a man must exercise his will, his free will, as you would describe it, is it the will of the flesh or of the will of man? And we go back to John 1.13. You're close by. Look at that verse. Don't ever forget this verse. Always remember this verse. John 1.13, which we're born. That's being born again. That's being becoming the sons of God. That's being regenerated. That's being quickened. Which were born, not of blood. It wasn't because you were born a Jew. It's not because you had the right blood from Abraham. That isn't it. Nor of the will of the flesh. It is not what you have by nature. That the will of the flesh is ruled out, nor of the will of man, that's any other man acting on your behalf like godparents do at a baby sprinkling of any denomination that has baby sprinkling because at least they're smart enough to know that that poor baby don't know squat about their religion. And so they have godparents there to do the believing for them. And so it's not the will of man, and it's not the will of the flesh, but of God. Just like the wind. You can't bring the wind. You can't cause the wind. You can't direct the wind. God does it. The wind blows where it listeth, and the Spirit of God blows where it listeth. And you hear the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. And so this is how we ask questions of an Arminian. If it is the will of the flesh, Mr. Arminian, how many will be born again, according to John 1.13? None. If it's the will of man, how many will be born again? Do you know how many people believe it's the will of man to bring your child to a baptismal font? You may not even be able to comprehend that anybody would be so foolish as to think they can get their children born again. It is called baptismal regeneration. And our fathers in the faith have fought to the death against it. It is a heresy. But it is no worse a heresy than decisional regeneration of the Arminians. Taking a little child and getting them to say yes and praying a one-sentence prayer about I want to be saved and go to heaven when I die. And think that that regenerates them? What part of them prayed the prayer? That's my question that I continue to ask in these different ways. What does quickened mean, Mr. Arminian? And do every one of you know exactly what quickened means? It has nothing to do with speed or fast. It has to do with life. Like the quick under your fingernails. You are quickened. You are brought from death into life. And you hath he quickened who were 
dead. So the word quickened must have to do with coming into life. And so we ask that simple question, what does it mean in Ephesians 2.1 when those Ephesian saints were quickened? I remember asking a THD who was the pastor of White Oak Baptist Church across Wade Hampton Boulevard from Bob Jones University after a Sunday evening church service, what does the word quickened mean? And this man that would have had to have spent more years than anyone in here has spent at the pursuit of theological knowledge says, it means to be convicted. There's only one thing you can do when you hear something like that. Please take note. How do you argue with dumb? You just walk away. There's nothing you can do. That is so incredibly ignorant. You should know what the word quickened meant if you didn't have any other help but the context. And you hath he quickened who were dead. What does it mean from that alone? To make alive. So you ask the Arminian, what does quickened mean? If quickened means to make alive, Mr. Arminian, how much can a dead man assist in his own coming to life? And you hope that that might be sufficient to get him to think. If quickened means to make alive, how will you influence the dead man to assist him coming to life? Will you flop his arms? They're still dead. You can flop them all you want. If you jolt them with electricity, they'll flop themselves. What will you do? Oh, Father in heaven, I thank you through Jesus Christ, my Lord, for the body, for the word of God being so plain to us. If you deny that man is truly dead in sins and needs to be quickened, who taught your idea of salvation first? The devil himself in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 when he said, Thou shalt not surely die. That's the first one that taught your idea. What does regenerate mean? Do all of you know? What does it mean to generate? It means to issue another life. Parents procreate. Parents generate. It's called a generation. The generations of Abraham. There were 42 generations from Abraham to the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. They're called the generations of the Lord Jesus Christ. To generate is to give life to. To generate is to be born. To regenerate is to be born again. Isn't that surprising that we would end up with the words being born again, again? Because it's all consistent. It's all consistent. To regenerate is to give birth to again. Since you teach faith for regeneration, Mr. Arminian, do you know that it requires resurrection power in order for a man to believe? Does the resurrection power come before or after he believes? Where would we go to show that it takes resurrection power for a man to believe the gospel? Is there anyone that will put a smile on their pastor's face this morning? Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and I would like you to see it. It's a wonderful little passage of Scripture. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, after he explains their election and predestination in Christ Jesus, he then says that he doesn't cease to give thanks for them and to mention them in his prayers, praying for some very specific prayer requests. And one of those prayer requests is that they would come to know what is in verse 19. What is the exceeding greatness of His power 
to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. And then he goes on in verse 1 of chapter 2 to say, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. When he says, And you hath he quickened, who did he quicken first that's in the context? The Lord Jesus Christ. What kind of power did it take? His mighty power. And it's called exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. Because if a man ever believes the gospel, the exceeding greatness of God's power was exercised toward that man first, to quicken him from death so that the living man could believe. And, and the gospel could be a savor of life unto life. Are these things simple? Thank you, Lord, for making them simple because we're simple. And all the confusion of Jesuits and all the confusion of Arminians, whether they be Methodist or Presbyterian, whether they be Mormon or Russellites, whether they be Baptists or Lutherans, are confusing. How in the world can you save a man that is dead by offering him something and telling him he must perform a condition? Thank you, Lord. If God makes seeing eyes and hearing ears, Mr. Arminian, that's Proverbs 20 and verse 12, the seeing eye and the hearing ear, the Lord hath made them both. If God makes them, why don't most see or hear, Mr. Arminian? If the seeing eye and the hearing ear, the Lord God hath made them both, why don't most men see and hear? Because God's only given seeing eyes and hearing ears to a few by His divine choice and His glorious grace. Mr. Arminian, does God need permission to begin work on a man's heart? Or can He just interfere and change it? That's just to keep them thinking. They think that their heart is sovereign against God and God can't do anything in their heart. But we see things totally different in the Bible about what God can do to the human heart. God can harden the heart. God can soften the heart. God can quicken the heart. God can elevate the heart. God can enlarge the heart. And on and on the Bible goes about what God does with the heart. And we've been over that before. Mr. Arminian, help me understand exactly the order of how these things happen. What happens to the sinner's will after he is born again? Since he already had a will to be born again before he was, what happens to his will after he's born again? What benefit is there from this being born again? Does his will change? Because you're telling me that his will already wants to be born again and his will already wants to believe the gospel and he's already willing to invite Jesus into his heart in order to get born again. Well, once he's born again, what changes there in his will? We don't know. Because it's illogical. But our God's religion is not illogical. His will was changed by the power of God because it is God which worketh in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. God does the working in. And what kind of power does it take? The exceeding greatness of His almighty power to put in us to will and to do of His good pleasure. Then we will. Born again changes our will altogether. From a will that is totally oriented to the flesh and hates God to one that is oriented to the Spirit in the new man and loves God, and loves righteousness. 
Let's come to the subject of gospel means. When we say gospel means, means is a word meaning a vehicle or a tool or the instrument or the power or the faculty by which something is accomplished. Men believe in gospel means, meaning that preaching the gospel is the vehicle or it is the instrument or it is God's tool to bring about regenerating men. We deny that. We say that regeneration takes place only by the power of the Spirit of God who acts when and where and as He pleases upon men. It can be before birth. It can be on the cross near death. It can be at any time. But God makes that choice and God does that operation of grace. The gospel is only for those men that have already been born again, as we read earlier from 2 Corinthians 2, because it is the savour of life unto life. Arminians typically believe for people to be born again, they have to invite Jesus into their hearts, like I've already told you earlier. So sending them the gospel is crucial to tell them God's wonderful plan for their lives to be born again by a sinner's prayer. And if the gospel doesn't get to them with the sinner's prayer, then they won't pray the sinner's prayer. If they don't pray the sinner's prayer, they won't be born again. If they're not born again, they'll never get to heaven. So we've got to send the missionaries. Because we believe in the gospel means of salvation. Now we believe in the means of salvation because Hebrews 9 says that by means of we receive our eternal inheritance. But what is the means in Hebrews chapter 9 around verse 17? By means of death. They which are under the first covenant might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. That's a question right there. How do... How did people get saved in the Old Testament? Did they invite Jesus into their heart since none of them had ever heard about Jesus? Did they call Him by name? Or did they say, whatever's going to come later that looks like this lamb, I invite that thing that's going to come later that looks like this lamb into my heart. Some of them will, in a weak moment, say that you're saved by the law. Some in a weak moment will say that you're saved by... The creation, because it says in Romans 1.20, they are without excuse. Others will say it's in the promise of a Savior. It's amazing, though, if it's the promise of a Savior, and it would require preachers, why didn't God send any preachers to 98% of humankind on the earth for the first 4,000 years? There were no preachers sent out of Israel to the Philistines. Gospel means... Mr. Arminian, and we rejoice in this, and we wish you would rejoice in it with us. Jesus said a man coming back from the dead could not help evangelistically in Luke 16, 31. So why do you think your far inferior methods can and will help? How do you get people born again, Mr. Arminian? Jesus said that if Lazarus were to come back from the dead, that wouldn't be sufficient to warn the rich man's brothers. That if they weren't moved by the preaching of the Old Testament in the synagogue, they wouldn't be moved by a man coming back from the dead. So what are you going to do to get a man born again with the gospel? If all you have to do to get born again is to believe in a moment of time, Mr. Arminian, why does the Bible ascribe salvation to works in so many places? Why does Paul say, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, because you invited Jesus into your heart when we had that song service? Why does it say, 
that knowing, brethren beloved, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope, we know that you're elect. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2-4. through 4. If being born again is by gospel means, why didn't Paul mention the gospel? Why did he mention their working, their laboring, and their patiently enduring? Why did Paul himself not say, not say, in 2 Timothy 4, 7, For I invited Jesus into my heart on the road to Damascus, and I know that there is laid up in heaven for me a crown of righteousness, which the righteous Lord, the judge of all, will give to me and everyone else that invites Jesus into their heart. Why does it say, I fought a good fight, I kept the faith, I finished my course? And on that basis, Paul knew that he had a crown of righteousness waiting for him. Why doesn't Paul ever refer to what you're talking about, Mr. Arminian? Don't we want to be Pauline in our doctrine of salvation? Mr. Arminian, in Acts 16, it says that God opened the heart of Lydia. If Lydia believed because God opened her heart, could she have believed if God hadn't opened her heart? If Lydia believed God opened her heart, if Lydia believed because God opened her heart, does He open the hearts of all men? You're forced into a horrible predicament, Mr. Arminian, because you don't recognize God operating on hearts before they believe. The Bible says, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Why did Lydia believe this wild man that had come from Jerusalem and what he was saying about Jesus of Nazareth rising from the dead? Why did she believe that the first time she heard it? Because God opened her heart. And he had already shown in her the exceeding greatness of his power to bring her to believe. Mr. Arminian, regarding the gospel means, and and you think the gospel is what gives eternal life to men, we believe the gospel tells men about the eternal life God gave to them. We believe the gospel is the collection of information and knowledge they need in how to please the God that gave them eternal life. To tell them about the eternal inheritance that they have. To tell them how God sent His Son to be the Savior for them of their sins. But you say that it is the means of eternal life. If the Gentiles in Antioch believed because God had ordained them to eternal life, could they have believed if He had not? It says in Acts 13.48, And as many as were ordained to eternal life, believed. Which comes first there? If God hadn't ordained them to eternal life, could they have believed? Why is the statement made in Acts 13? Because it was the distinguishing factor between the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul said to this one category, you've judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. And to the other category of Gentiles, he said, or Luke wrote about it, and as many as were ordained to eternal life, believed. God made that difference. If the Gentiles in Antioch believed because God had ordained them to eternal life, does He ordain all to eternal life? If He ordained all to eternal life, why is He just referencing a group of people in Acts 13.48? And so we end up in countless illogical dilemmas for Mr. Arminian. If medicine cannot help a man already dead, Mr. Arminian, how can the gospel help a sinner? Medicine in a morgue does no good. The gospel preached to sinners dead in trespasses and sins does no good. 
For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. We see in it the power of God. We understand it is the power of God. Mr. Arminian, do you believe that the gospel is a sweet savour of death unto life? Contrary to what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that is what I keep hearing you say, that we need to preach the gospel to the lost so that they can get saved. We need to preach the gospel to those that are dead so that they can become alive, so that they can be born again, so that they can be regenerated. Can you show me in 2 Corinthians 2 where Paul said that the preaching of the gospel is a sweet savour to God of death unto life? It's not there. Since you believe that faith comes into existence by merely hearing God's Word, preferably with good music, is it the old carnal and fleshly man that believes, or a new spiritual man? You know, they love Romans 10.17, and we're coming to Romans 10.17 very soon. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing with the words of God. Faith cometh where? Into your soul, by the words of God, or into activity, by the words of God? Where was faith in Abraham when God said, Count the stars, so shall thy seed be. Did those words give Abraham faith? Or was Abraham already a man of faith and those words drew his faith forth into activity? I believe that. More on that in the days to come. All of this is to help you that when we get to Romans 10... You'll think we're just walking down a path in the garden of truth. And the Lord is showing us the trees and the fruit. I wish I didn't have to do all this. But I want it to be easy for you by undoing so much Arminian damage. Some of you have never heard the Arminian damage and you've written me and said, I'm so thankful that I was never taught the Arminian scheme of salvation. And I wish I could say amen with you. But I was taught it. And it's hard for me to fully flush all of their corruptions of Scripture, which they are so prone to do. Mr. Arminian, why would Paul want to waste his time preaching to the saved brethren at Rome when he could have handed out tracts at the Colosseum or left trinkets with John 3.16 on them at brothels? When you open up Romans chapter 1, why does it say that Paul had great desire to get to Rome to preach the gospel to the elect beloved brethren at Rome? So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Why do I want to do this? That I might be encouraged and comforted together with the mutual faith, both of you and me. They're already believers. Paul's already believers. That is a great preaching service. Why in the world isn't he in the Colosseum holding up 3, colon 16 in the end zone as the Christians are being eaten by the lions? Why? Why didn't he even go to the Colosseum? Why wasn't he at the brothels visiting the prostitutes and giving them a trinket with John 3.16 on it? Here's a pencil that says, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Romans 1 is amazing. When they, re- they, they only know one verse in Romans chapter 1. It is verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, also to the Greek. Only verse they know. 
They have never read verse 15. They have never read verse 14. They have never read 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, because it would tell them that Paul's great ambition and what he had prayed for incessantly was to be able to get to Rome to encourage the believing saints there. I cannot, it's hard to comprehend the corruption of scripture by going in and just grabbing one verse and pulling it out. Don't ever do that. You know what efforts I say that every text of Scripture is a slave to its context. Right. We, we want to understand Scripture in its context. A text out of context is a pretext, and their whole religion is a pretext. Mr. Arminian, if you'd be consistent, your missionaries are just like the Apostle Paul. Is it not true that the missionaries you know only tell stories to churches of believers to get more support? Is it true, Mr. Arminian, that every three years they come home and just go from one church of believers to another church of believers just to get more money? Why don't they trust the God that's trying to save all the heathen? Since the Bible says that you shouldn't ever take money with you when you go preach the gospel. Mr. Arminian, if you're going to use Mark 16 and Matthew 28 and Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1, if you're going to use those verses to put a burden upon the people of God today to go preach the gospel to every creature, then why don't you use Matthew chapter 10 that says to take no script, no food, no money, because the labor is worthy of his hire, and if you find believers out there, they're going to take care of you by feeding you and supplying you to the next city. Why don't you ever practice scripture? Why are you so inconsistent? Why are you so hypocritical? And, and, and I want to add to that. I've never seen any of you take up poison or serpents because Mark 16 says, if you're going to preach the gospel to every creature, then you better be able to handle rattlesnakes and cobras and you better be able to drink poison. And I get to supply the poison. And yet they want to use the great commission all the time, but they never use it consistently. Those were special men that God prepared. And I want to tell you, he made their way. The Apostle Paul didn't carry any money with him, but people took him into their home, they fed him, and they sent him on the way with a few pieces of coin to buy his whopper on the way to the next city. And if they won't take care of you when you leave that city, take your shoes off and clap them in front of that city, at the gates of that city, it'll be more tolerable for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day than for that city. But you can say the, the kingdom of God has been brought nigh unto you. I'm getting goosebumps just telling you about the power of the apostles. And these little men that want to act like they're apostles, I want to tell you one thing. I have never met in my entire life, and I have known a few Arminians. I have never met a sincere Arminian. Because a sincere Arminian would live in a tent. And a sincere Arminian would live naked. And a sincere Arminian would drive the lowest piece of junk that he could possibly find that would get him from point A to B because every extra dollar that he spends for anything else sends a soul to hell. I've never met one like that, ever. Not even close. They all have very comfortable lives. But if souls are dropping into hell at every minute because we are not sharing the gospel with them, You don't have a right to anything in your life except the bare necessities to get to the next soul to get them saved. I remember meeting a a country preacher from Georgia when I was about 19 years old that said it would be better for an Arminian to go without clothes and suffer the the shame of nakedness than to allow a soul to drop into hell for not bringing the gospel to him. 
Because every when you buy that set of clothes, what's the current rate for souls these days? If you'll go home to a Google search box and type in the cost per soul, you're going to be shocked that Arminian organizations in the past would take their whole budget, divide it by the number of souls saved, added by all their missionaries, and come up with a result. And they would have great long dissertations about how the missionaries were more effective in Ghana than they were in England. And how that the homegrown missionaries were just plain pitiful. It took so much to get an American saved that we might as well give all of our money to foreign missions because it's so easy to get them saved. And there's reasons for that. If you give a woman that's never had clothes a pretty dress, she's going to get saved. And pretty dresses don't cost much when they're supplied by the ladies' auxiliary associations and the ladies' missionary associations of churches. You say you're getting downright dirty and nasty. They do with us. They deserve every bit of it. The cost per soul. What does that do to you? Is there anything inside of you that just gets a little bit uncomfortable with the cost per soul? Does that, does that leave a taste of something like we're redeemed by silver and gold? And that if you don't give enough, souls are going to go to hell? So that because an American wants to live a comfortable life, he is the one that's responsible for souls in hell. They've never even thought about these things. They are not even capable of thinking about them any more than a priest of Rome is capable of thinking that he just ate a cracker because he is under strong delusion to believe a lie. They've never thought about them. Gospel means. Mr. Arminian, do you believe you can turn goats into sheep? That is fascinating work that you do. Jesus couldn't do it. You should have given him a lesson. Why didn't you invite him to your seminary or your soul winning class? Did God choose to richly give the poor faith, Mr. Arminian? Or did God choose the poor because their faith was rich? The answer is God chose the poor rich in faith. God chose to save more poor than rich in order to bring to nothing the rich of this world who think they are something. And they are nothing. Do you believe you can turn tares into wheat, Mr. Arminian? How effective does the Bible tell us it is to preach the gospel to the lost? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 it says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost then who do you want to preach to? If you preach to the lost, it's hid to the lost. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine to them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God makes a difference in men's lives, and it is as significant as when he said, Let there be light. And there was light. Otherwise, men are blinded to the gospel. And so we go looking for those that God may have already shined His light into their hearts because they're inquiring, because they're seeking, because they're reading God's Word, because they're gathered together in synagogues where the Old Testament Scriptures were preached, because they're in the marketplace asking about every new religion that comes into the city of Athens because they're looking to know the unknown God. 
And we preach the gospel to them and a Dionysius will stand up in the front of all of his peers and walk out in Damaris with him and many more likewise. Mr. Arminian, why do you keep saying that a gift has to be received in order for it to be a gift? When was the last time some, and I mentioned this to you last week, but I, I, I want you to find it precious. When was the last time a president or a governor had to get someone to receive his pardon? All, he's, all he does is sign a piece of paper and says, don't push the button, don't hit the switch. You don't have to receive it or not. The switch isn't turned. You're not electrocuted. You're pardoned. Mr. Arminian, Matthew 11 says that Jesus looked as he preached and saw half of his audience, the most knowledgeable, the most religiously trained, reject what he had to say, and publicans, tax collectors and harlots, the prostitutes, believing him. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, I thank thee, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. Mr. Arminian, why has God hid the gospel from the wise and prudent if it's necessary to save them? Mr. Arminian, what's the best text? Help me. I want to be a soul winner like you. What's the best text to use when preaching to turn natural men into spiritual men? Mr. Arminian, what do we do about babies? And that takes us back to a few other subjects that we've dealt with already. And what a simple little question. That little question at a Calvinistic Bible study that I was at in 1976 turned that Bible study upside down. What about babies? Your beloved Bruce, Mother Joy, messed up a good Bible study because he wanted to keep asking, what about babies? And as soon as an answer was given about babies, that babies were saved by grace alone, then the second question was, does that mean there's two salvations? And that is painful. Does that mean there were two salvations? I had to hear that over. But I still need to ask, are there two salvations? Are there two ways of getting saved? I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord that He used your husband to turn a Calvinistic Bible study upside down that I was there when I was pursuing a Calvinistic understanding of the Scriptures. And I didn't mean to point at you. I'm just thankful. Mr. Arminian, what part of the Gospel did Elizabeth preach to John to get him saved and full of Spirit while he was still in her womb? Mr. Arminian, what did Peter actually accomplish with Cornelius? Since Cornelius already feared God, already worked righteousness of various kinds, and was already accepted with God before Peter got there. There's many more. Trust me. Mr. Arminian, what can be done to help get a camel through the eye of a needle? Help me be a soul winner like you. What methods do you suggest to get rich men saved? Mr. Arminian, do you think that apostles were decent soul winners? I mean, would you let them in your soul winning group? Were they decent? When Jesus told them that it is more likely for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get saved, they said, then it's impossible 
for rich men to be saved. They understood it. Do you understand it, Mr. Arminian? Do you know what the Lord's response was? I'm waiting for Mr. Arminian to come along. And he's going to get the camel through the eye of the needle? No. The Lord Jesus said, with men, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Amen. So, what, so what does God do in some cases? He'll even save a rich man, though it's not his ordinary rule of operation. Sometimes he'll save a rich man. But he's got to do the saving. Mr. Armin, I'm going to let you off the hook because we're hungry. And it's time for our break. I just want to remind you that the lordship controversy that you've created is absolutely absurd. You started out with a sinner's prayer, and that sinner's prayer used to be, I repent of my sins, and I own Jesus as my Lord, and I commit my life to live for Him from this day forward. And now, Mr. Arminian, you say that anyone that adds those three elements of repentance, of lordship of Jesus Christ, and of a commitment to obey, has added works to grace and is not saved. That's absurd. All you have to do is open the pages of Scripture. The Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, do you think he said, Who art thou, Savior? What did he say? Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus. What did he say next? Savior, what wilt thou have me to do? Do! That sounds like he's adding to grace, Mr. Arminian. He said, Lord! What wilt thou have me to do? And do you know what he had to do? He had to keep the faith, fight a good fight, and finish his course. And he did it. And so there was a crown of righteousness laid up for him. Oh, brethren, they have taken it, they have watered down the sinner's prayer until it is absolutely nothing. And if you add anything to it, John MacArthur, though we would disagree with him on many points, I want to commend him for trying to take a stand for lordship salvation against these inventions of men of watering down the sinner's prayer to nothing. There isn't a sinner's prayer in the Bible. But you know, I'm not going to even give you all those questions I had for the lordship controversy. Once saved, always saved. Arminians typically believe that once you get a person to pray the sinner's prayer, then you can help him document the date and guarantee his eternal destiny regardless of how he lives that day or any day after it. That is blasphemy. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That is the ordinary rule of the Bible. Where is this little jingle in the Bible? Once saved, always saved. Mr. Arminian, show it to me. I'd like to memorize that verse. Well, you can memorize it right now, sir. Because it isn't in the Bible. Why did James clearly and powerfully condemn salvation hope by faith alone? Faith without works is dead. It's a devilish faith. Oh, Mr. Arminian, what about those that believed on Jesus in John chapter 8 and verse 30? It says, many believed on Him. But then Jesus jerked their chains and they wanted to kill Him and He said they were of their father the devil. Do you still believe in once saved, always saved? Or now are you going to back down on the fact that they believed? The Holy Spirit says they believed. Much more could be said. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord that our God reigneth in heaven 
And he chose in Christ before the foundation of the world those that would be his children. And he predestinated them to an eternal inheritance. In the fullness of time, he sent the Lord Jesus Christ to do all the legal work. And in the process of time, after we were conceived, at some point, we were born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, like the wind bloweth where it listeth. We then hear the gospel and believe. And it is the savour of life unto life. It is not the means of death unto life. And because we believe the gospel, there is laid up for us the hope of an eternal inheritance in heaven. And that is the Bible doctrine of salvation. Lord, bless us to live in the light of it. We should live more consistently and more holily than any others because we have the truth about salvation. Holiness becometh thine house, O Lord, forever. Let us be the holiest group of people around, holy in our relationships, Holy in our television. Holy in our speech. Holy in our thoughts. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Amen. Amen.